Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, it's very good to uh, be able to fill in for Matt today. He's been off at a seminary class studying the book of Deuteronomy for two weeks. I think he's going to have something to say. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be able to get to share occasionally with you. And last time I did, I, I uh, did the prayer in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1. And then after that, I needed to begin to work on another sermon. And I just kept reading the book of Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians, the latter part of one, uh, in just a little bit. You know, the Internet has connected people in so many ways, both good and bad, right? Um, it started as a means to share thoughts uh, uh, across the academic community, but today most everyone has access and you can share whatever you want. Lady Gaga has a thought and she tweets it out to over 8 million people. Now there's no evaluation process as whether or not those 8 million people needed to know that thought, but it gets out there, right? And what this creates is a playing field in which all thoughts are acceptable and they ought to be shared and equally considered. In the first century world of the Bible in the New Testament, uh, the Rome uh, dominated the world. And Rome did a couple of things for the world at that point in time that uh, God used. One was they created a network of roads to travel between the major cities and, and created trade routes. The second was is they instituted a common language called Greek. Uh, this created a means of communication that was actually unique in history up until that point in time. Well, there became this pathway then for not just the exchange of goods and services, but for the exchanging of ideas, our philosophies of life, as it were, that went beyond the level of just the educated sharing those things down to common people. It created, in a sense, like a physical internet at that time. And God used that network, those roads and that common language to spread the gospel from the city of Jerusalem to all the known world. It created a marketplace of ideas also. And each city generally in the center of it is this place where uh, farmers and people came to exchange their goods and services, right? A marketplace, a farmer's market we would call it today. Well, in the midst of that, it created an environment also for the exchange of ideas, uh, lively discussions about philosophy of life, about what is important. Today, we're going to look at a church in one of those cities on that Roman network, the city of Colossae. The Colossians there, uh, it had been an important city, but in a sense, the, the network had passed it by, as it were. It's like a western town that was significant along maybe a trail, but then when the railroad chose to go this way instead of through them, it lost some of its influence. But it was still like many cities of that day where there was a lot of ideas floating around, a lot of issues, a lot of philosophies. So there was a collection of ideas, and so today I'm going to use this illustration about the marketplace of ideas. And this container is going to be our marketplace, okay? And in it are all these ideas that are swarming around philosophies of life. Now, there was a lot of different ones that were floating around in that marketplace of ideas. 
The Greeks, uh, Greek philosophy, um, mysticism, Judaism, Jewish ceremonialism, an early form of Gnosticism were all floating around. They promoted certain values and ways of thinking that shaped how a person would live. Now, let me tell you something about this. Now, there's no quiz on this, okay? So you don't have to try to remember what a Stoic is, okay? But uh, so Greek philosophy was prevalent. In, uh, in, in, in philosophy, the soul or a person is defined with three elements, intellect, emotion, and volition, how we think, how we feel, and our choices that we make, okay? And those lead to action, what our body actually does. In Greek philosophy, they believed that the soul inhabited the body, okay? It occupies a body, but in their philosophy is the body and the soul are actually two separate things, okay? So your body and your soul, and now they're, they're linked together, but it took on different forms because of that dichotomy, that separation between the soul of a man and his body or what he did. So you could think what you want, believe what you want, but you could also do what you want. So the body, because of that dichotomy, uh, began to take on different forms of philosophy. One was the Stoics. The Stoics believed that the body was the enemy of the soul, and therefore it should be controlled, okay? We know, if, so if we call someone today of being Stoic, we say they're in control of their emotions. They don't emote much, okay? They seem to be very stiff upper lip, as it were. Okay, so the Stoics believed the body was the enemy of the soul and needed to be buffeted or controlled. Okay, so they were very disciplined people. They wouldn't give in to their passions or their desires because the, the, their minds were gonna be in control of their bodies. Okay, that's the Stoic, one expression of Greek philosophy. A second, we use this because it's similar, is the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans, again, bought into the idea that the soul was separate from the body, but their view was you didn't have to control the body, you could do whatever you wanted to in the body, okay? So you can live out your fleshly desires, you can eat. Again, we tend to associate Epicureanism today with eating, right? People, we call them foodies, okay? So you could eat whatever you want to fulfill your desire. <coughs> Um, uh, you could drink as much as you want. Their philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The body goes away and where souls are free from that. So the body, what you did, didn't affect your soul in, in the Epicurean mindset. So you could do what you want, sexual uh, ethics. You could do whatever you want. You could do it with whoever you wanted, your wife, your mistress, um, a girlfriend, someone you casually meet, male, female, children, it didn't matter because what you did in your body didn't affect your soul because there is a dichotomy between them. Now, also in, in this uh, first century marketplace, you have Jewish, uh, uh, what became Jewish ceremonialism. The Jews viewed that the soul was the same as the Greeks and that it's intellect, emotion, and volition, or your will. Okay, but they, their view of, of the body and the soul is that the, the soul uniquely occupies the body. Okay, and so they're tied together. 
So what you did mattered because what you did was actually a better expression of what you believe and what you thought, okay? You can see the Bible is heavily influenced by Hebrew philosophy, so we're supposed to live a certain way. Well, unfortunately, though, in the first century, uh, Judaism was heavily dominated by ceremonialism. So in other words, do the right things, and it shows that you believe the right things. They had it reversed, okay? So it became very important for the Jews of that day to keep things like circumcision and um, to, uh, uh, to, to, to practice the Sabbath or to have holy feast or to eat the right kinds of food because that distinguished them from the other philosophies if they lived right and chose the right kinds of things. Now, imagine this in this marketplace of ideas. You've got a Stoic and an Epicurean and a, and a Jewish ceremonialist getting together for lunch on Thursday, okay? And so the Stoic says, I'll just have bread and water because I'm in control of my fleshly desires. The Jew says, oh, I only want what kosher. Where did this meat come from? Okay, was it sacrificed at the temple because I can't have that. I can only have certain kinds of things that are cooked a certain kind of way. And the Epicurean says, hey, what's your biggest steak you got? What's the finest wine that you have because I'm in it for my pleasure? So they get together, they have lunch, and they have a very lively discussion about what each other is eating and what how are they going to celebrate the new moon? Or why don't you celebrate the new moon? Why do you do that thing on the Sabbath every Friday night? So they had very lively discussions about those kinds of issues. Along with those philosophies, there were actually other expressions of philosophies. There were uh, the mystics. The mystics was another form of Greek philosophy because, again, there's a dichotomy between the, the, the soul and the body. And they, they sought after higher experiences. They were seeking visions and dreams and kind of these inspirational things that would help them to interpret their life. So they wanted to transcend their body and their minds even with these mystical experiences that they were seeking. And then you add into that things like uh, early forms of Gnosticism, and uh, in, in, uh, they believed that there was this higher authority and, and only the intellect, truly intellectual elite could achieve that kind of deal. And then the one I, I, I almost left out were intermediaries. The, 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 the Romans had many gods, right? And so they believed there were all these gods over there and, uh, and then them. And in between them were all these intermediaries. There were lesser gods and greater humans and then there was their ancestors. So they had to pay homage to their ancestors and those lesser, greater humans and lesser gods and the gods themselves, okay? So all that is happening in the marketplace of ideas in this first century uh, culture, and particularly, in really all this is, you can see it in a lot of Paul's writings, but particularly he's gonna talk to these folks and these believers in Colossae about this whole issue. Uh, and so, entering into that marketplace of ideas, 
with all these philosophies and all this discussion coming on, enters in Christianity. So the question becomes, how does Christianity fit in? How does this belief about Jesus and what he did and his claims fit into this marketplace of ideas? So the discussions go, what does Christians do about food? What can you eat or drink? What festivals do you keep? Those kinds of things. And then so these young believers in Colossae are trying to address this issue of how does Jesus fit into here? And it causes confusion on their part. Uh, And Paul is going to warn them to be careful about being led astray because of those discussions. Let's look at a couple of passages in, in the second chapter of Colossians for you to see how, how Paul's going to interject these whole concepts about philosophies and point out, look, they, they're not going to make sense. So in verse 4, uh, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. As you enter the marketplace of ideas, you're going to hear things there that sound really good and that seem to be true, and they're going to create confusion for you. In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depends on human traditions and elementary spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, so he's giving them these warnings here. In verse 16, I'll point some amount to you. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to religious festivals, new moon celebrations, and the Sabbath. You see it there? Stoics, Epicureans, Jewish ceremonialism, and mysticism. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality which, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, a Stoic, or the worship of angels, intermediaries, or mystics, disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. It's mysticism, it's early Gnosticism, they have this special knowledge. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. Okay? Do you see that there? So Paul is recognizing these believers are entering into the marketplace of ideas. There's all kinds of philosophies they're being asked to interact with, and he's trying to help them see, look, there's a hollowness to it. They're based on elementary uh, principles of this world. There's appearance of wisdom in self-made religion is what Paul's going to call it later. So the pressure is, how do we get Jesus to fit into this? What is it going to take for them as believers to be able to go into the marketplace and enter into these discussions so they feel competent to be able to do so and they feel like they fit in? Well, let me tell you something about this whole issue of Jesus fitting in. In the marketplace of ideas of that day and still today, the goal is tolerance. No idea, no philosophy should be presented as superior to another. 
if you strip out the core of the state of the soul of man and, the, and his destiny from the discussion, then you can argue or, or, or discuss things like food or ceremonialism or morality or how should we live. Then you can determine each person for their own self, determine what is truth from their own perspective and their own experience. That's what the marketplace of ideas demands of us. So again, these believers in the first century were under great pressure to try to help, uh, try to describe how Jesus fits into here. We're under the same pressure today, and Christians have been for the last 2,000 years. How does Jesus fit into the world that we live in? So if they could help us rethink Jesus and his claims, then we can fit into this discussion. So you and I still face this same kind of pressure about getting Jesus to fit in to current cultural issues, don't we? Here's how it looks today. Ever seen that bumper sticker? It's many ways to the same God. That's how Jesus should fit in. Just one of many options that you have to choose from. Well, here's what you have to do with Jesus to get him to fit into this, okay? You have to say that Jesus was a good man, okay? He was a good example to follow. He was a perfect example of someone who was fully uh, ruled by love or the principles of love. So it's fine to follow his example. He stood up for the poor and the oppressed. That, boy, we're for that too. He stood up against the arrogance of intolerant religious people. He accepted everybody who came to him. Jesus is a good man. If he'd be a good man, he could fit in. Another way it comes up is that Jesus was a good prophet. He taught a new way. He turned the religious thinking on its head upside down in that day. He enlightened the people he came in contact with in that and has since, just like Aristotle did, just like Buddha does, just like Muhammad does. He's a good prophet. Or you can come, come to agreement in the marketplace that Jesus was a good teacher. That golden rule deal, do unto others what you'd have them do under you, those beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, that is good stuff. That's great teaching. He was a master teaching. He could teach the intellectual, he can confront them, but he could take someone, a common person, and say, look, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So if Jesus could be a good man, a good prophet, or a good teacher, then we could figure out how to make him fit into the marketplace of ideas. That was the pressure they were under. Again, we're under that same pressure. Now, it's not that, uh, to say that he's just a good man or a good prophet or a good teacher, we have to strip away that he was a good God and that he did something for us and he claims a deity uh, that we, we would have to deny. 
Now, our discussions today aren't about food. I, I'm not sure I've ever had a discussion, someone come to me and say, what do Christians believe about what's okay to eat? Or what's the ceremonies? How come you guys don't celebrate the new moon? And boy, that once a blue moon ceremony, that's a great fun thing, right? We don't get into those kinds of discussions. But the kinds of discussions that we get engaged with, the cultural issues of today, have to do with several things. Let me point some of those out to you. One of those is sexual ethics. One of the contributions of my generation over the last 40 years was a sexual ethic that goes like this. Two consenting adults should be able to do whatever they want in privacy. That they, uh, Jesus uh, is for love, he's for happiness, he's for pleasure. God gave us these desires, even these sexual desires, right? He created us, you say. And so he knows we have these things. So what's wrong with expressing those in love to someone else, in the privacy of, of my own home? Why should you make me feel guilty because I, I choose to express myself that way in these God-given desires? Jesus doesn't, need to, doesn't intend to make us feel guilty for this, does he? Sexual ethics. Another is spirituality. Many people today, almost no one runs to the term, I, I am religious, right? People will say I, freely, I'm spiritual. I have a spiritual mindset in that. What's, what's going on with that is that God's presence is this universal force, okay? And he gives me inner strength to live life and to face the things that I face in life. I tap into that spiritual part of my being in my way, and you tap him in, into him in your way. Why do you need to try to force your methodology upon me? See, I can do whatever I want and stay spiritually centered. Okay, it's my inner strength. If we can enter Jesus into that discussion, we'd fit into the marketplace. A third thing is moralism. People seem to be okay if each person has the freedom to define the rules, moral rules. Well, they don't really mean moral rules, they kind of mean guidelines. And probably more like suggested behavior, right? Because rules are kind of stiff and rigid, but guidelines are suggestions you can mold and you can adapt for, for the given situation. And so I can remain in moralism, I can remain moral even though I violate what I say are my suggestions for how you're supposed to live. But each person should have the freedom to choose what those are for them. Four things that people seem to want today or, and we get engaged with is, is God being therapeutic. Uh, this is that, that the mindset that God wants me to feel good about myself. He helps me to be the best me, as it were. Uh, he relieves the guilt that I have, and he takes away the bad thoughts that I have. And if I can just think rightly, God is incredibly therapeutic in my life. So here's what we face. They don't say it exactly like this, 
But here's what they want from us as Christians. If Jesus can make me feel good about myself, if he would give me strength to face the life I want to live, and he would let me do whatever I wanted to do that I thought would make me happy, I'm all in. It's hard to fit into this marketplace of ideas because the reality is Jesus doesn't fit. He doesn't intend to fit. And Paul is going to say some things to this first century church, the Colossians, about this marketplace and about why Jesus can't fit into this. He's not going to fit a discussion about food for them or ceremony or morality or about how you should live or where you should get your meat. He's not going to fit into that discussion because Jesus is totally different from a normal philosophy of life. There's a difference in kind and a difference in degree. The difference between Jewish ceremonialism and mysticism is a difference in degree. If I were to talk to you about a footwear and I would compare a pair of tennis shoes to a pair of sandals, that's a difference in degree. If you were to raise the question of, well, what about a 747 passenger jet and a pair of sandals? You've changed the topic, okay? It's a difference in kind, not a difference in degree. You can't say, well, they're both forms of transportation, right? No, no. Sandals can't be compared to this. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't fit into a typical discussion about a philosophy of life. He's different. And Paul's going to mention three things in this latter part of chapter 1 that make Jesus distinct. And because he's so distinct, he's not going to fit into this marketplace of ideas. He's going to use a term in this, and actually if in your Bibles, if it gives labels to sections, it's probably labeled something like the supremacy of Christ or the supremacy of the Son of God. He's going to use a term here twice in verse 15 and verse 18 that refers to Jesus as being the firstborn, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the church, okay? Let me explain that term because it's important to understand what Paul means in that term. He doesn't mean that he's the oldest brother, okay, or the first one to get there, okay? He means that he's preeminent, okay? He's not part of the hierarchy. He's the cause. He's the source of. He's the starting place of. That's what it means uh, that he's supreme. He's different in kind, not different in degree, He's different in kind. So the first thing that Paul's going to say in verse uh, 15 of chapter 1 is that uh, Jesus is distinct in creation. He's distinct in creation. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Uh, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul is making the point that Jesus is distinct in creation. 
He is the creator God. He's the source. He's, he wasn't just there in the beginning. He was the beginning of all creation. To separate creation from him doesn't make sense. Creation doesn't exist without him. He's the source of creation. Now, I love creation. When I vacation, what's fun to me is to go to the beach. Sorry, sound guys. I bumped that mic. Um, is to go to the beach and stare at the ocean and pretend I'm a grain of sand. Okay? God is that big and I am that insignificant. We just returned from uh, uh, 10 days in, in Colorado. I love to go to Rocky Mountain National Park and just walk the trails and look at the grandeur of the mountains and the blueness of the sky and the clouds. I love to watch water come down from I don't know where, somewhere up there. Because it reminds me God is so much bigger than I am. And the fact that he would take joy in me at all and want to have a relationship with me is overwhelming to my soul. He's the source of creation. It doesn't make sense without him. Did you see the pictures of the mountains on Pluto? We just discovered those. Jesus put them there. He's there before us. He, he's measured out the expanse of the skies and the cosmos. He's planted fish with colors underwater where people can't see them. He's that creative. Jesus is the source of that creation. He's distinct in all of creation. Secondly, Paul's going to talk about that Jesus is distinct in the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile uh, himself reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is distinct in creation, and he's distinct in the church. He is the church. He's the source of the church. The church doesn't exist without him. The church doesn't define him. He defines the church. He's the head of the church. He's supreme. We're to worship him, not our formulas for worship. We, he is supreme in the church. God in his grace and mercy calls us his children. He is our father and Jesus is our brother. But Jesus never gave up, his, gave up his divinity. He's still master. He's still Lord of lords. He's still king of kings. He is supposed to be supremely worshiped and honored in the church. We don't define him because of what is down here. He defines us. He defines his church. And he defines how we enter into that conversation. He sets the terms for that. So he's distinct in creation, and he's distinct in the church. And third, Paul's going to point out that he's distinct in what he accomplished. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of the evil 
because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you with Christ in the physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Earlier in verse 13, it says that Jesus transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He is our savior. He does something for us in distinction of all other options. He brings us into right relationship with God. It says that we were alienated and enemies. Okay, enemies, you didn't care a flip about him. And he did something for you in dying on the cross. You were alienated from him. In other words, imagine your best day of behavior, okay? Your thoughts were right, your attitude was right, you were doing all the right things. On that day, you were so far away from God, you didn't know which direction to look to find him. That means, that's what alienated is. You're so far from him, but Jesus, through his blood, his death on the cross, his death and burial and resurrection, reconciles us with God. So much so that now he views us as being holy and blameless. Okay, he deposits in Ray Anderson's account all of his righteousness so that God looks at me and doesn't say, oh, Ray Anderson is a bad guy. Okay, he doesn't even say, oh, Ray Anderson got cleaned up, he took a bath. Okay, he looks at me now and says, Ray Anderson, that's Jesus I see. He declares us holy and blameless, so much so there's not an accusation that stands up against us. Jesus is distinct in creation, he's distinct uh, in uh, his role in the church, and he's distinct in what he accomplished. It doesn't fit in. He's not supposed to. We don't need to try. He doesn't need us to help him figure out how he fits into the marketplace of ideas. He doesn't need us in our 21st century intellect to figure out, okay, here's a palatable Christianity that we can get out there and market to people. Paul's saying, let Jesus be Jesus, and you look to him and follow him. So there's a marketplace of ideas all around us, and in that there's all kinds of philosophies that we have to wrestle with and we get asked questions about of how does Jesus fit in? And the answer is, he doesn't. He doesn't care to. He wants us to know him. Jesus is God. He's the creator. He's the inventor of the church. He became flesh. He revealed God to us so that we can understand what love and grace look like in a form that we can comprehend in our own minds. He's not like anyone else. His message is not like anyone else. He's not a good idea. He's not just one of many philosophies you get to pick and choose from. He's God. He accomplished something for us that we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. So what's the takeaway from this? Because we live in this marketplace, right? We have the internet where all these ideas are swapped around and we're told to be open and tolerant to all ideas. Well, here's a couple of takeaways I would say from this particular passage. First of all, 
Paul would warn us like he warned the Colossians, don't let the pressures from others weaken your view of Jesus, okay? Don't let that pressure get to you. Don't try to figure out how to accommodate their thoughts, their slick arguments and uh, sound-minding things and things that seem wise but aren't, okay? It's not based in truth. So don't get caught up in that. Don't get tied up in a knot. Take a deep breath and relax, okay? Don't let the pressures cause you to compromise what you see is true of Jesus from the Bible, okay? Many times I, I realize that people, when they want to talk about philosophical things with me, they love to hear themselves talk, okay? And they're not really wanting to listen. They want to talk, and they want someone to, to support and agree with their ideas. Don't engage with that. Second takeaway, besides don't give in to the pressure, is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when in the marketplace of ideas, when you're watching the news, and it seems like Jesus has just lost one more battle in this world. God is not threatened, okay? He is in control. There's nothing that happens down here, no new idea under the sun that's going to come up and go, He's going to go, I never thought of that. Okay? Don't be afraid if it looks like at times we're losing battles. Because ultimately, God is in control and we win. He wins. Before the final chapter of history is written, this is what the Bible says is going to happen in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your abundant grace in our lives. Thank you that we can't even begin to comprehend who you are and what you're like and what you did for us to the full magnitude. But Father, thank you for doing that. Jesus, thank you for being our savior. Thank you for giving yourselves uh, on our behalf to reconcile us with the Father, to bring us into right relationship and right standing. And Father, we need you. We need to understand your word. We need the power of your Holy Spirit in our life that we can live our daily lives out in the marketplace of ideas around us and not get caught up or led astray by various philosophies that come along or various concepts and to not be afraid. So Father, we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Now here we're going to show a video, one last reminder about who Jesus is. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord 
of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.